0: After struggling through nearly three decades of disordered eating, poor mental health and low self-esteem, today's guest decided it was time to face her fears and start living the life she wanted and deserved. She now visits schools and businesses across Australia teaching the Be Here method that enabled her to reclaim her self-esteem, freedom and future. She's a firm believer in the way that we speak to ourselves determines our experience of life. Episode 77, Meg Linton. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in, so bring on the inspiration. Yeah, we um, we went out last night, so the first night in the van last night, just to sort of test everything out and, I don't know, get all the niggles and... Mm figure out what van life is before you embark around Australia. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's good. Oh, amazing. It's my dream <laughs> figure to do that me. actually. Uh, well, I see this is the thing. I did Um, the last episode I did was me just chatting about sort of what's happening with the podcast and, and stuff. And that was one of the themes in it was the fact that everyone that I've mentioned the whole van, trip to everyone's like oh that's my dream I'd love to do that and it's made me really realize just how many people put their dreams off in life to sort of you know have the mortgage and have the income and have the I don't know kids at school and I don't know Uh, it's just life life gets in the way (laughs) doesn't it and the the
1: expectations of what life looks like um Mm -hmm. yeah but to actually just go and do the thing is amazing um yeah so it's so good so good to see so many people doing it too
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Well, I, we have a mutual friend, so I'm really excited about having you on the podcast and the mutual friend is Troy Knight, who is a wonderful human being. Yes, Um, definitely. And I said that we'd talk about him on the podcast and he said, don't because he'd get it. (laughs) (laughs) How
1: how much talking can we do?
0: i was like you have to be mentioned, Troy. You're wonderful. Um, so yeah, no, he's a, he's an absolute sweetheart. Um, so yeah, that's how I got onto you, and I'm I'm really excited to have the conversation because your story I think can resonate with a lot of people, but also the lived experience and the outcome. Because now you've you've written this book, Watch Your Language, which I think is very interesting in terms of the inner monologue that can actually uh, create your sense of self, which can be quite negative at times if you're not careful. um and I do want to say we're not mental health professionals and if you are having any mental health issues please seek professional and medical advice that's Mm -hmm. the disclaimer okay (laughs) so how did the book come about because I know that that's a fairly recent thing what was it that you really sort of how did you come to write the book Oh, such a great
1: question! And firstly, thank you so much for having me on the show, Fiona. I'm I'm really excited to be here, and yeah, really glad that we've connected through such a beautiful human, such as Troy. So yeah, oh, I know. just really, really, such really a epic. Sweetheart. Yeah, <laughs> so good. We can surely share the stories later. Um,
0: yeah, have <laughs> you met <laughs> his partner, Bree? No, not yet. Oh, not yet. she's incredible. I can't wait, yeah. she's incredible. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're a really cannot. great match. Oh, cannot wait! Cannot
1: wait! And I'm sure to be soon. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Oh, look, the the book, uh, it was a burning desire inside of me, I believe, for quite a few years. Um, It's something that just was a slow burner. I started the book probably nearly four years ago now, and it was when I went away to the south coast. Um, Do you remember when we had the bushfires? Yes. Yeah, I took off um, and I knew that there was – I knew that there was something I needed to do and I didn't quite know what it was. And I had sort of been on a bit of a self-care, self-help journey myself, uh, which I'm sure we'll go into in the, uh, in the details of this podcast, but I drove away and I'm like, I just feel like there's a bit of a mission about to unfold and spend some time in some beautiful, beautiful townships on the South coast, Milton, uh, but you know, probably the most affected Lake Conjola and Oh, Are I'm they sitting... all Sapphire Coast? Sapphire Coast? Yeah, so down on the south coast, yeah. so near Mollymook and all of that, it's just it's uh, stunning, a beautiful part of my heart. And I went and did a bit of a workshop with the community in Lake Conjola, uh, pretty close to after the bushfires had just ravaged through that area. And I remember walking into the hall and seeing probably about 30 of the locals that some were homeless, some were just had nothing, nothing left but what they had on their backs. And they rocked up to this workshop and we just ran a bit of a meditation and yoga. And I never have felt so much love in a room as what I did there. And people coming together in this sense of oneness to share their story, to be a part of connection and humanity and it was that night that I started writing. All these words started to come through me. I realized that the three decades of adversity that I'd put my body through with disordered eating, bulimia, anorexia, orthorexia, uh, body dysmorphia, anything to do along with those lines, I had been there and it all just started to come out on paper. And the words just came through me. And that was the start of this book. And I I stepped into a bit of a, a realm where I'm like, you know what? This is my gift. This this whole history um, that my life has been, I'm now so grateful for. And the words just spilled out, and that was how the book started.
0: Wow. So it sounds like you had all the years in the eating disorders. <laughs> I
1: did. <laughs> I had many, many years in the eating disorder. Every single one of them, I went there. <laughs> so
0: what was the... As one of the, um, uh, what was it? Orth- what was it? So you had bulimia, anorexia. What was the other one? Something with the ortho.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. Orthorexia. So What's eat- that? <laughs> clean eating disorder. So, so
1: what does gonna- that mean? So we get addicted to eating clean, right? Um, this, is a, this is actually quite a big one um, where, look, and I, I don't want to label anything, but there's a lot of apps out there on our phone, one in particular, where we can track calories and macros and things like that and become quite addicted to um, a, a certain way of eating. Now, clean eating is, of course, Um, You know, uh, taking out all preservatives and additives and eating relatively organic. Um, But it also means it can stop us from enjoying just regular foods that encompass our day as well. Um, So it's just
0: another addiction with eating. Does that make sense? It does. I think you just gave me permission to eat another slice of cake.
1: Yes, <laughs> because that's what it's about. we It's like anything, uh, wherever we put our energy and attention, that's what grows. And because of the nature of an eating disorder, you want to be in control. Uh, you want to make sure you have well, you think you have power over it, so to speak. So, uh, when we find um, we're using things such as these apps that track our calories and macros and our food, we're using them daily. We're already planning our lunch when we're eating our breakfast, and we're not being present. We're we're getting to the end of the day, and we're like, oh my goodness, I've you know I've I've uh, basically. Can I swear on this podcast? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, I I've fu- I've fucked up here and I've basically just gone over my, my calories. I then need to punish myself with exercise the next day. Um, and we get addicted to seeing these numbers. It's like addicted to numbers on a scale, right? But now it's to do with food. And there's just, it's, we, we can just become so obsessed in this, <laughs> in this world we're in um, of. Is that your doctor sneezing? Yes, ah, she did sneeze. It definitely wasn't me. It was my dog.
0: Sorry, I'm going to leave that in. That was gorgeous. Um, so if you've had three decades of disordered eating, and my understanding of the definition of disordered eating, without obviously going to Google, is that it is an unhealthy relationship with food. Mm. It's different to an eating disorder disordered eating is the your whole relationship with food would that be correct
1: absolutely and that can go two ways um it's it's not necessarily you look at somebody that um is anorexic or bulimic it can also go the other way where somebody might be holding a lot of excess weight and also an unhealthy relationship with food in the ability to just overeat does that make sense
0: yes it, it does yeah So uh, yeah. Uh, you mentioned that you had three decades worth of um, this disordered eating. At what point did you say I need help dealing with this? Mm.
1: I'll start at the beginning just very briefly. I won't go too much into it, but I believe my eating disorder started at six years old when see
0: that's interesting because i've mm. had I've had somebody else that's had eating disorders on, and she said the same thing that it came from well, from in her situation, it was from her mother and how she, her mother treated her.
1: Yeah. Yep. There's always a a trigger, right? And this is one Mm. of the first things I say in the first chapter. Um, The first chapter of my book is called, you're not pretty enough to be in our team. And that was the words that came out of Um, a schoolgirl's mouth at the age of six years old when we're in the park, we're all playing, lining up for a game of tunnel ball, right, choosing our teams. And I remember it so well. And we're getting to the end of this line and there was, you know, only a couple of people left to be picked, myself included. And she said, you know what, you're not pretty enough to be on our team. Those words created my story for the next three decades. Do you know what? It's
0: so interesting Mm -hmm. that that just... uh and what I have realized through my own um I think everyone's in therapy now. I think it's so healthy to yes. be in therapy. But oh, totally. But just it can just be a little phrase or a little word or something. And for me, I did an EMDR and it was amazing that you sort yeah. of sit there and go, Wow, this all tracks back to this this whole thing, like you, this one phrase that this person yeah. said to me, or this one thing, or this one event. And yeah. well, for me it was lots of events and lots of yeah, <laughs> I'm a work in progress, Meg. But, um, oh, we, well, we all are, myself yeah. included, totally. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's remarkable in terms of um, how innocuous someone's comment can be, but how impactful it can be to those receiving it.
1: Oh, so much, you know, and it's you know I, I do I bring that up at the very first thing in my book because. We have to understand that it, it's just a limiting belief that we've created um from somebody mm. else's point of view. And mm. it's nothing to do with us. But as kids, we take it on board and that becomes our paradigm and our program. Oh, so from absolutely. that, absolutely. Yeah, it's just and it's crazy. And it's it's almost it's really interesting when we can look back on it now and actually go wow, I created that story. That was on me with my willpower. I created what unfolded from there. And, you know, I took that, that moment and I started to practice perfection. I started to practice people pleasing, right? I started to practice what it meant to feel enough because I didn't feel enough, right? So from that moment, I started to create the eating disorder, so by the age of 16, which is when the physical right started to, to happen, I had, I was a competitive swimmer, I was always trying to be the best at everything. I nothing I did was ever enough, you know, and I, I believed I took this into my family and was, I took the their judgments of me on board, always thinking, oh, I need to get approval, I need to be accepted. And, and that, of course, spun into an eating disorder at 16 when I decided that, you know, I'm I'm going to be the best at not eating. And that was where the physical, you know, manifestation of the eating disorder started. And I got down to 36 kilos within about three months.
0: Holy cannoli.
1: Yeah, I, I was good at perfection. <laughs> and that was, you know, oh I goodness. practiced it so hard. I was, you know, said I was a competitive swimmer and I just went, you know what? I'm going to be the best at doing this because this is what I can control because I didn't want to feel the feelings of not feeling worthy. So I kept numbing it with sport, numbing it with perfection, and then, of course, numbing it with an eating disorder.
0: So 36 kilos is absolutely skeletal. Like you would have just been skin on top of your skeleton. Yeah. Who tapped you or did anyone tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, this is something's not right?
1: Yeah. Do you know what? Probably. I was numb through that stage. It's is something I actually talk about in the nervous system workshops. We uh, have three states that we move through, right? We have our um, social engagement state, which is safety, uh, reciprocity with another. It's called our ventral vagal state. We feel safe. We then have our spinal sympathetic, our fight flight, which is we all know that very well, right? <laughs> our reactivity, um, you know, judgment, criticism, blame, uh, guilt, um, and, you know, just Overwhelm, but we also can drop down into what's called our dorsal vagal state. And that is a state of numb, unresponsive, and shut down. And that's where Mm -hmm. I lived. So I actually don't remember a lot of my childhood. I don't remember people telling me how I looked, or what I do remember is people telling me, you know, oh my goodness, you look so skinny, or you look so unwell. And in the mind of someone with an eating disorder, that's actually a compliment. It's a really reverse brain. So someone tells you, you look so sick. Why can't you just eat? And you go, thank you. I am winning at this. It's, it's crazy. And that's all I remember. You know, I, there was never a moment where somebody said something and went, wow, I'm, I'm really sick. Right. The moment that I, I guess, acknowledged what was going on was when I was in hospital and I was sitting there with a dietitian at the time. And she said, once you have an eating disorder, you'll always have an eating disorder. And in that moment I went, fuck it. I'm labeled. I may as well make the most. Of it. And I, I felt so deflated and defeated. No one should ever tell anyone that. And if you've ever been told that, which so many people get told, I want you to know that it can change. (laughs) I want you to know that it's not your label for the rest of your life. But in that moment, I decided that that was me, that was my label, and I was the victim. So that was when I changed from anorexia to bulimia. I started to move into drugs and alcohol and all the other addictions. And that's when I started to, of course, move into a bulimic state fluctuating, um, you know, with with eating enormous amounts of food and then, of course, vomiting it back up. And that became my state for
0: 10, 10 plus years. So you mentioned that that was a, di- a dietitian or someone in hospital mentioned that to you. So mm. someone, at some point you were hospitalized, someone was a caregiver or had said, hey, this is not right and put you into to try to get help, but you just don't remember that.
1: Yeah no, I remember going wow. there because it was like I would have had to have um, had intravenous um, support Little food. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, and that was that was where I was at. And I I think in it was in that moment I was like, oh wow, okay, I'd I've got I've got a choice here, but I chose to continue to not deal with it because what it was was a plan to eat high calorie foods, including chips and chocolate and processed foods right, get this IV and overeat because that's, that's unfortunately what's done in the system. It's not wrong or right, it just is. However, it didn't teach me anything. It didn't teach me about where it started. So, of course, the old dialogue was still there. I still didn't feel enough. I just shifted to another pattern, to another numbing device of bulimia.
0: So what if this is sort of one disorder going into another disorder, Am I saying that correctly? Disorder of yeah, yeah. <laughs> into in Yeah. I'm not familiar with the terminology, so I'm probably going to butcher it all. No, um, no good. Yeah. So at what point did you, like if you're competitive swimming, you were, you know, you're an athlete, but at what point did you sort of, after 30 years, what was that tipping point of, I need to change huh. this behavior? It's, yeah. Because I mean, obviously, you've, logically, you, you can sit there and say, this is not healthy, this is not, you know, I I know that this is a form of perfectionism. Obviously you've been in care, you've done therapy for this, you know, like you understand it from a logical point of view, which is very different from an emotional point Mm -hmm. of view, which is what the disorder is reliant on Um, from a non, I'm I'm assuming, I don't know. but um, Yeah, no, definitely. Very right. Yeah, spot on but at what stage did you, did you that go what like what clicked for you? everyone's going to be individual but what was what did what clicked for you in terms of I'm now I'm now able to change that from a disordered eating process to normal or are you even in a normal one now? Mm,
1: great question um, I broke down. I <laughs> I I think Brene Brown, you know she she talks on, oh, on isn't, yeah, isn't she amazing?
0: Yeah. Um, you know,
1: we, we break down or we break through. Um, you know, we just have this, this moment. And I was at a point at 34 and I was a personal trainer in Newcastle, I was 50 clients a week, I was running uh, af- uh marathons in Africa 90k. <laughs> No, I ran a 90k marathon in Africa to run from my feelings. I did a fitness comp to run from my feelings. And I oh was like, how
0: are you able to do all of this? If you were if you were malnourished <laughs> because you're not you up your food, how are yep. you able to mm-hmm. a look your clients in the room uh, in the eye in terms of the yeah. hypocrisy in regards to getting them healthy and your yourself being unhealthy in terms mm-hmm. of that disorder eating? But also how are you able to sustain that level of physical activity?
1: You know, what? such a great thing. Sometimes you don't know what anybody's going through, especially um, when we are looking at bulimia. You can look at them from the exterior and think all is well. Um, but the internal system and the mind is in a completely different state. And that's where I was. You go in and out of this roller coaster ride. And again, when we get in that state of spinal sympathetic, we just we numb, we get used to numbing. So the amygdala in our brain is just like, right, what do I need to do to to stay on top of this and push these emotions down? So, yeah, the, the body is phenomenal in what it can achieve even in that state, but, of course, only for so long. And that was it at 34 I was on my way to um, another, you know, eight-hour day, whatever, and uh, ten clients in a day and teaching and training and whatever else I was trying to fit in. And I drove out of my house after another 4 hours sleep and I don't know if this was deliberate or not, but I nearly drove into an Audi truck and that was my moment. I was like, you know what, Uh, I need to make a choice here. I can either continue with... This disruptive patterns of shitty self talk and self sabotage, or I have an opportunity right now to do something about it, and that was it.
0: So what was it about that near accident that changed? Because he would have had, I'm sure there would have been events in your life in those thirty years that could have been a, 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 a turning point in terms of that behaviour. What was it? What was it about that particular accident or near accident that? triggered that change or do great you even know
1: question. yeah great question I, I do I had started practicing yoga um, alongside my teaching and um, PTs and everything I was doing I had been lucky enough to have yoga pull into my life and they chose. they spoke on awareness they spoke on our thoughts right and our dialogue and being the witness and I didn't understand it I didn't understand it at the time I'm like, I don't know what that means. And that near accident was such a blessing. I remember when it happened and I just was like, wow, I've just been shown my life and I'm 34 years old and I've been living the same way for three, like nearly three decades. And I just, okay. yeah, and I just was like, you know what, this is this is it. Maybe this is, a, this is an awareness point. I literally looked at my my life like on a movie screen and just went, you know what? I've been just gifted this opportunity, and I'm going to do something about it.
0: What a typical in the disordered uh, stage of bulimia. What would be, and I and I want to be careful not to give people that are in that current situation any ideas in terms mm-hmm. of how to go about things. But it's, what would a typical day look like for you? Like, how many times were you purging? Mm. Oh,
1: so, such a good, great, good question. And it's it uh it varied so some it's like anything in life we can travel through life and I speak about this a lot in my book we have I think we spoke on at the start of the conversation As we move through life, we have situations unfold. We have these things called samskaras, they're impressions. It's things people say, it's trauma, it's the things we cling to or resist, right? And we push them down in our bodies because we're unwilling to feel them. They're situations that are unpleasant. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. Cool. So they get stuck in our nervous system and in our bodies. And we go through life and they stay dormant but they're spinning around until something in our life triggers them. Right? So we might walk into a situation, say if I walk into a situation in an office and we sit down and I make a presentation and somebody stands up and said, you know what? That's shit. Come up with a better idea straight away. My dialogue goes back to that little six-year-old girls and go, you're not enough. You're not worthy. I'm repeating the same story because it's triggered an impression from my childhood. Right? So In a bulimic state of mind, there was many things that I was holding on to, things people had said, these impressions that I believed to be true about myself. So I'd move around in a relatively normal state until something in my environment triggered that little girl and that was the trigger to then feel guilty about my food, to purge so that I felt uh, in control and that would then bring up all those emotions. And then I would, again, just push them back down again and move through the same process year upon year upon year until I dealt with those emotions and feelings
0: in the story. Right. So you were purging when there was a trigger. You weren't purging like after every time you ate.
1: Well, that well, yeah, this, this is what sort of started to eventuate. Because it was a trigger, it started to become addictive. So even as right. I moved into my early 30s, because I had been – It was a release for me, right? And I knew that when I was feeling uncomfortable in my body, rather than sit with the emotions and the feelings, which is what I should have done and which is what I, of course, try to do now, I was like, well, this is going to make me feel better in an instant. (laughs) So, of course, what we practice grows stronger. So it started to become, you know, sometimes more than once a day, sometimes two or three, definitely. And that was when my body started to shut down. My periods stopped. My hair started falling out. I was bloated consistently. Um, and, of course, my, my mind was constantly in that monkey mind dialogue.
0: So am I correct in, in, in did I catch that there was also drug abuse as well? Absolutely. 30, okay. Yeah,
1: absolutely, yeah. Anything and everything I could get my hands on between the age of 19 and 34, <laughs> I was all over it. <laughs> absolutely, because it just, again, it, it numbed out what I didn't want to feel. It was an easy wow. out.
0: Yeah, is that common that people with eating disorders, in your understanding, that mm. if they have that addict because you're talking about that eating disorder as an addiction? Yeah, definitely. So is yeah. that common then that they that those the, those that suffer from eating disorders are commonly addicted to other things, or is that just unique to you and everyone's different? In the research
1: that I was doing for my book, What's Your Language? Um, I I looked right into that. Uh, I think addiction as a whole, we gravitate towards whatever is, you know, in front of us. Phones are an addiction. Um, Online shopping was a big one for me as well. I got myself into a lot of trouble with a lot of debt. Um, Again, to purchase something in the moment I felt good about it and it sparked dopamine in my brain, but ten minutes later I'd forget about it and then I'd want something more. Um, And, yes, I 100% believe that addiction is a huge thing with eating disorders. Because we, we the emotions bubble up to the surface. That's what happens, right? Um, they, they don't stay stuck, they don't go away, <laughs> right? Unless we actually feel to heal. So they bubble up to the surface and then we choose something, whether it be porn, whether it be um, against social media, this is a really big one for teens, um, which is a whole other conversation. Um, we choose food, we we choose to purge, we choose over-exercise. And that then becomes our vice.
0: So when you had this near accident with the LD truck, did you, did you sort of stop? Did that trigger the change for all of those addictions?
1: It brought everything to light. I remember obviously not going to work that day. And I actually sat down with myself and I let everything come up. And it's the first time I'd ever done it. And it was, It was like it was being presented to me. I had this this moment with God, universe, source, whatever you want to call it, and it was like you have a choice. It was like this voice came through me and it's like you have a story to share. And I get goosebumps just talking about it and quite emotional. It was in that moment and that same day that I had an opportunity to book a ticket to Bali and I booked it. And I went to Bali for 10 days and I sat with everything, and I got shown where I needed to go from that moment. I got shown the teachers that I needed to look into. I started to practice yoga rather than do it to lose, to lose weight or to burn calories or to be the best at it. I started to bring in an internal practice of self-awareness and that was how it was presented to me. It was like you have a choice. So it brought up all those emotions and triggers that I had been pushing down.
0: Yep so what told me through the near accident because to me i just thought okay well it was an air miss and I, I didn't realize it was so significant that you didn't go to work what what was the actual event
1: it was it was just such a drive to work i said i'd, I'd spent many many nights or to be honest months of it of four to five hours sleep because my yeah. anxiety was so high obviously I couldn't sleep i'd be on my phone till late hours at night all of that and I was living, as I mentioned before, I was living in this dorsal vagal state, which is like this, anyone who has uh, moved through a depressive state or is highly linked into fear which is actually going through a lot of our teenagers at the moment I address this a lot in our nervous system workshops and I the second book that I'm writing the perfection pandemic is all based on our social media and how it affects our teenagers so they're living in this numb state we live above the surface and I don't even remember I walked out the door got in the car I didn't even look and as I said i I don't know if it was intentional. I was in such a dark state of my body and mind. I didn't care. I didn't care if I lived that day. I didn't care if I survived. I, I didn't care. My life wasn't worth living at that point. I was just going through the motions and it was, it was just like that light bulb moment. It was just like, you know what, this is, this has happened for a reason. You now have a choice.
0: What year was this? Like how close was this to the bushfires? Mm. This would have been in 2016,
1: 2017. This was about three, yeah, three years or so, three, it was probably 2016, to be honest, just going back on it. Um, and it was just, yeah, it was 2016. And it was, that was that moment where I was like, I need to step out of my personal training for now. I need to start to do some inner work. I did my yoga teacher training. That fell into place after I got back from Bali. I literally quit everything. I got home from Bali and I had, what is Brené Brown a, a, a spiritual breakdown. Everything that I was doing, I stepped away from. Everyone in my life at that moment, including my family, was like, what the fuck are you doing? You can't do this. You can't let go of your career. You can't, you know, you're 34. How can you do this? You're, you know. What, what are you up to here? Like, what is this all about? And I didn't know. I didn't know the answers, but I just had to trust my gut. And ever since that moment, I've trusted my gut. It's been real. It's not been easy. Following our hearts uh, is <laughs> not going to please everyone and not everyone's going to like what you do, and that's okay.
0: Yeah, it's, it, I think that's not to be missed in terms of that statement, considering you were so you had conditioned yourself to be a people pleaser Mm. to then turn around and say I don't know but I'm not going to please my parents or my friends like (sighs) I am going to quit everything like for you not to reverse that decision is is monumental in terms of um the inner fortitude that that would have had to take
1: yeah, it's, it look, it's been a tough ride, but it's been a ride that I have just embraced with my heart and my soul. I, I speak about it in the book, actually. I, my, my parents are just amazing. However, there's been a lot of adversity. You know, that's what this podcast is all about. Staying true to my heart and trusting that there was a reason behind all of this, a reason that I didn't know right? You know, in our life, we're we're, we're conditioned to figure it out, to know the answer, to control. And I had no idea what this was all about. And I remember this conversation with my dad. My dad and I have had a very uh, volatile relationship growing up. It's been full of reactivity. And it's, of course, my own perception, never thinking I was enough and never thinking that I was able to please him. And as I started to practice awareness and practice stepping into my own power and starting to change my dialogue and belief around my worthiness and who i was as a person i realized that my dad's reactivity was my own and one day when i was at home the same conversation came up and i stood there with an open heart and i just saw him for who he was a reflection of myself and i said to him i said you know what dad I said, for once in my life, I'm doing this for me, not for anyone else. I said, you can either choose to support me or not, and I don't care, but I'm not ever going back on this decision because I trust this is exactly where I need to be. And ever since that moment, I've stood my ground and it's been uncomfortable and it's been really hard, especially through COVID, but I'm here today and I've got this moment and now there's a book and I have so much gratitude for the hardship and the adversity but to follow our hearts and to continue to do my best to speak my truth, and use this disordered eating and the patterns that I've been through as my constant reminder to come back to love, I can't. I can't be more grateful.
0: So, how, when this epiphany happened? How close was that to the fires? When was the fires? If they, this was two thousand and sixteen, mm. the fires weren't sixteen, were they?
1: That 2020, February, yeah, February, 2020. It was a lot, it's a lot of work and it's, yeah, I just, I decided that I needed to learn those three things. I was like, I need to learn about my nervous system because I need to understand what's going on in my body. So I started to study my body and how I was holding myself. I started to learn about my brain and neuroplasticity through the teachings of Dr. Joe Dispenza, Bruce Lipton and Daniel Siegel in his book, Mindsight, and I started to focus on my heart. I started to ask myself, what is it that I want? And that was in, in a nutshell. And I'm still doing the work, 100%. But I can pick up now my anxiety or my reactivity or my inner dialogue so much quicker now. And now when it comes up, I say thank you. Thank you for showing up, for showing me what I need to do here to bring back in more compassion.
0: Mm-hmm. So is the the learnings that you've done in terms of for yourself, is that how you got into the nervous system workshops?
1: Definitely. It's, it's actually really interesting how it evolved. It was something I wasn't planning on um, doing workshops on. Um, I was kind of in the start of writing my second book, The Perfection Pandemic. And I, my clients, kept coming to me saying they're they're living in constant stress and anxiety and deep-rooted fear. And I've got um, clients all the way down to the age of nine that are struggling with disordered eating or low self-worth, but I've also got clients up to the age of 60. Hang on a minute. When you're saying
0: clients, what are you clienting them for? Definitely. So we work through body image coaching. Oh, Um, okay, okay.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, again, shifting dialogue.
0: Okay.
1: Yep. Yep. And, and with what I was finding was that the the across the board from the age of nine to 60 was, I'm in mean, reactivity. I'm feeling um, consistently stressed and overwhelmed, and especially kids these days. They've been through so much with COVID and, and everything unfolding, but we're not able to recognise in our body this shifting into this reactivity and then we're, we start to live there because that's what we're practicing so that's how they eventuated and it's it's been a really nice journey to start to share this information out that's never my own and to get people to understand where we're living in our body so that we can actually do something
0: about it so when you say how we live in our body are you talking about is that just more being mindful of our uh, how our body operates and the energy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So inner and outer. So uh, over my Instagram, um, there's I sort of I share a fair bit um, on sort of reactivity and response. Uh, And when we are presenting closed state, we can notice our shoulders are risen, our trapezius is up around our neck, our breathing is fast. Right, we breathe through our chest. Um, Our We feel scared, we feel reactive, and it shows as in a closed body. Does that make sense? Everything shut down. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that we can pick up on in any moment, right? We're we're living in this body 24-7. And when we are in a responsive state, our shoulders are back, we are open, our heart is open, our face is soft. We have the ability to be present rather than on autopilot. And it's, a, it's kind and compassionate. I could be in front of you and I feel safe with you. I've got reciprocity with you. Uh, there's a connection. It's that social engagement. So the body shows us where we are. And that's, that's for me, that's it in a nutshell. If We can pass down to our kids and get them to understand that, wow, when our shoulders are up and when we're, we're closing off our hearts and we're hunched inwards, we, we, we're lacking self-confidence, we feel anxious, we feel scared. That with the opening of our bodies, we could actually feel better in ourselves. I believe that's really powerful and that helps so, me immensely.
0: So you're saying change, change your posture and that will help your nervous system rather than, and mindset rather than change your mindset. And then that will change your posture.
1: It's both hundred percent. So our body is first. It's in, in my book, I speak on the method called the B here method and our B stands for body, right? So when we can Firstly, because our body is first, we've, we can see it, we can feel what's going on. So when we soften our shoulders, even if you do this now or anyone listening, if you roll your shoulders up, back, and down, you take a huge breath in from the belly and then an open-mouthed exhale and let it go, you'll actually feel things soften. It's in that moment then that we can interrupt the neural pathways of reactivity, right, and the synaptic connections that fire and wire the old dialogue of shitty self-talk to then acknowledge, right, where we're at. We can actually become present and go, hang on a second, it is only in this moment that I can choose again. And that's where I believe the change can happen. We can choose to see the situation as just uncomfortable, or we're sitting in discomfort, mm-hmm. or there's or there's something really like horrible unfolding, and then we can choose to stay open in that situation and not react.
0: Okay, so we had to take a break, everybody. So sorry. Well, I had some background <laughs> noise to sort out, so we're back. So tell me, in terms of uh, the workshops, like how did you find yourself? Were you affected by the fires, or how did you find yourself doing these nervous system workshops for the people that were affected by the the um, fires?
1: With the, with the workshops, it was just something that kind of just eventuated into that. It was a, the fires just taught me a lot about um, recognizing our situation, right? And that things mm. can change so quickly. And that was what I sort of took from that. I was like, when we can... Uh, And and this has been a really big practice, myself included, we know, and I'm still practicing this, but when we can understand that whatever unfolds in our environment is out of our control, right, such as the bushfires, such as COVID, it's up to us how we travel through it, you know, it's up to us how we choose to see it. Uh, Wayne Dyer once said, "When we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change." And this is sort of, I guess, where a lot of the the things in my book or the the nervous system workshop started to eventuate is trying to expand these tools out so that when a situation happens, like the fires and COVID, are huge. They you know they require us to be in reactivity, hundred percent. But as soon as we are safe, right? then it is up to us to bring ourselves back to a regulated state. And, of course, where our digestive system flows, where we can make good choices and where we can, uh, again, be in social engagement with another person. And, and that's just, again, it's just, a, I guess, in a bit of an involvement of um, my, my own work that is still the work and, yeah, realising recognizing how how big the situation is that unfolds and how many fucks I need to give in that circumstance.
0: Yeah, but it's interesting that you see, like, and I understand the premise of that saying that you, you can't control your environment, but to, but to some extent you can. Like I understand COVID and bushfires and, and whatnot are out of the majority of the people's control. Um, not would say bushfires out of everyone's control, COVID. Mm. Same from a lab, people. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, but for the majority of the population, it's out of everyone's control. That yeah. aside, but I would say that you've got some level of control over your environment from a day to day situation. Mm. Yeah. In, in normal situations. Mm. So, how do you, how does that switch from I've got no control over my environment to actually I have? Because you do have a fair bit of control over your environment. You can control who you interact with. You control um your mindset, which is your book. In some regards, you can control uh, what you're doing to sort of put yourself in a better state. You can control your workflow. You can. There's lots of things that you can control. Definitely. So definitely. How do you? How do? You, how do you? What's the rationale between the I can't control my environment, so. How many fucks am I going to have to give to mm. actually? I have a lot of control over it in reality.
1: Yeah, no, great, great question. Um, it's I think it's understanding. There's a certain um, amount of looseness. I I feel that we we need to take with us in a day to day basis. Anything can happen around us. Um, that you know anything could change this instant. I can step outside of my house and everything could change in a moment. Um, and I think it's really choosing the big rocks that we give our attention to. Does that make sense? Just really going, you know what, how how much am I going to give my attention or, you know, my fucks, so to speak, is, as they say, to this situation unfolding? So when we do go about our normal day-to-day, say, work environment, um, you know, being in this doing state, which is what we're doing now, um, and the things that we have planned through our day, is I think the best answer and not the right answer of course I just feel be fluid be open to things changing and be able to pivot in any moment without reactivity and 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 that's a that's a practice
0: so be be able to pivot in terms of without react so it's just the uh, the flexibility of mind
1: oh definitely it's yeah, yeah I'll I just I, I, look again I don't I definitely don't know enough to be right. None of us do. Um, But for me, that's been a really big one to actually tune into myself and go, you know what? Do I really need to react to this situation unfolding or can I respond instead and actually realize that whatever just happened and unfolded in front of me has nothing to do with me unless I make it personal? You know, and and that's the thing, we all see things through different eyes um, in that circumstance. And, you know, it's a big one that is unfolding at the moment. I think, look, with social media, I work a lot with teenagers and especially in that 12 to 17 year gap where there's a consistent uh, presence on uh, social media of people's opinions, of course, and how we need to look uh, in a society that, you know, is almost not real. So it's like what do we choose to, you know, give our attention to there?
0: Do you think in schools it should be taught, I mean, obviously they teach biology, they teach, you know, sciences and stuff like that. Do you think that they should be teaching the relationship between the mind and the physiological in terms of how they can present themselves? Do you think that that would... Because there is a lot of science behind it, so do you think that that should be brought into the schools? Because I know that I don't have kids, but I know that my my best mates' kids they're doing mindfulness and meditation and stuff at primary school now. But I don't know whether or not they take it that extra level in terms of okay, well perhaps it's more of a secondary situation in terms of secondary school situation in terms of the education. But do you think that should actually be brought be brought into the curriculum as well?
1: Oh Fiona, yes. It's actually on my on my fridge. I have a, a fridge, obviously in my kitchen, as we all do, but on my fridge, I have my 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 dreams where I want to take this. And it is exactly where I want to go. I believe it is so important. If I was taught in school that the physiology of my body is a reaction to emotions, right? then I believe I possibly would have been able to do something about it to actually go, you know, as I said, these first steps of the Be Here method is body and emotion, right? When we can actually go, I see you body, right? I see you tightness. I see you um, tension. I see you closed heart. I see you fast breath, right? If we can notice the physiological effect that's going on right now, call it out. It's called noticing and naming. And then the second step of the method I feel you emotion. I feel you anxiety, right? I feel you fear. I feel you doubt. I feel you worry. Then we bring ourselves to a moment of presence to go, hang on, my body is reacting because of an emotion. Okay, thank you for this. What is it that I now need to do for my heart, right? What do I need? I need to to give myself a moment to step outside and have gratitude. I need to hug my dog, right? I need to, to stand in the ocean or I need to be still or move or do yoga. That for me in schools would be amazing. And I, mean, I this believe is just- it is so
0: important. This is not a new concept. I mean, not, not at the all. people think that they have heart attacks when they're having anxiety attacks and panic attacks because the, it brings on chest pain. So, yeah, in, in some people. So it, it, this is not a new um, <laughs> airy fairy concept. This is oh, rooted God, no. in science in terms of this. Yeah, I yeah. think it would be. I think if they did that and they made it more mainstream, it would also make the the conversation of mental health more mainstream as well because oh. if people can notice it in terms of the physiological in terms of the body yeah it's interesting
1: oh it's so powerful and as you are right like ayurveda eastern medicine has been around for 5000 years they talk on this it's, oh, do they it,
0: yeah oh, actually 100%. yeah i know they do yeah of course they yeah do.
1: it's fascinating it's, it's yeah. it is it's been around for nearly 5000 years the the body's ability to heal that's it in a nutshell
0: we well, even if you anything. have acupuncture, like just on a basic level, if you have acupuncture, yep. you walk out there, which is working on your body's meridians. Yep. Like you walk out of there feeling like you'd be floating on a cloud. Now that, <laughs> yep. you can't tell me that doesn't have a, a physiological <sighs> effect, you know, as well. Yeah. It's so powerful, isn't it? Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to, I haven't read the book yet, but I'm looking forward to reading the book. What's your language? What is the main takeaway that you think that people can get out of reading the book?
1: You know what, on the front cover, I've got to the ability to shift our dialogue from judgment and comparison to self-acceptance and compassion. That, for me, in a nutshell, is where I want to see our kids. I also don't have kids either, but I work with kids a lot, and I feel that we're in a world that tells us we're not enough as we are to actually start to be kinder to our bodies, our vehicle that looks after us, to live in a state of equilibrium and balance is how we stay well, right? And we stay out of illness, inflammation, sickness, and disease, mentally, physically, and emotionally. And that's what I hope to share in this book.
0: Everyone, I think you need to go on and read this book. Watch your, uh, watch. your language? Is it on audio as well?
1: Not yet. We're in the process of working that with my publisher at the
0: moment. I can't get it on audio. Mm, absolutely. I've got them going around Australia. I need to listen to stuff. Yes. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely, definitely
1: on the menu very, very soon. I'm an audiobook (laughs) person myself as well. I love to hear the author talk on the book. um, And then I I also buy the book for reference if I love it. Yeah, Um, Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely on
0: the menu. Uh, How can people find you on Instagram? Because you said you share a lot of information on Instagram.
1: I do, yeah. I'm very open on my Instagram page. It's watch.ya.language. And I've got a website, which is watchya.language.com.
0: Perfect. Thanks, Meg. Thank you. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them.